You are listening to the episode 13 of Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast, the show that empower you to redefine the life you want and live your best life now. I'm Francine Belay, your host, and I'm thrilled to have you here with me today. Are you at a point in life where you are looking for more meaning in your work and in your life? Make more money and lead a movement to change the world? Let's have a chat. Go to www.francinebelay.com slash podcast. That's F-R-A-N-C-I-N-E-B-E-L-E-Y-I dot com slash podcast and click on request a call button for more information. This week, I have a treat for you. I know I always say how inspiring my guests are, but this conversation, I'm sure, is going to give you several aha moments. As I had in my conversation with Andrew Priestley, he is a business coach, business leadership coach, an entrepreneur mentor, business strategist, a speaker, an author, a publisher, and a charity chairman. I've met Andrew more than 10 years ago uh, in another life and was already inspired about his work and the tools that he has developed to help people develop their leadership and peak performance. In this conversation, Andrew has been very generous by sharing gems of information and wisdom, as well as real practical hacks for a meaningful life. He shares how he helps people build character, professional happiness, and fulfillment. Just that. We started talking about how he transitioned from being a teacher to become a peak performance coach and the bumping journey he took to get there. He also tell me why servant leadership, helping others and making impact in other people's lives is a great way to do meaningful work. As a psychologist, Andrew breaks down the science of well-being and what really makes us happy and help us to understand the reason why some people are not satisfied with their current situation. Um, he also shares how he became comfortable in his own skin in his 40s and explained that doing meaningful work is actually doing grown-ups work, not adults' work, but grown-up work. There is a very distinction there. We also touch on why people are frightened to make a choice and the three things that need to happen for them to achieve meaning. He also talks about how to perform without putting so much pressure on ourselves and provide master tips on how to articulate our value to others and great framework also to do so. Um, if this is something that you are struggling with, you've got to listen to this episode with Andrew and uh, hear his, pers his perspective on all those things. He also talks about the order of priorities of super successful people versus how struggling people have this order backwards. Andrew believes in family values and grounded leadership for a fulfilled life. Now let's dive in. 
Hi, Andrew. Welcome to the podcast. I, I'm, uh, I'm really delighted to actually be invited on this because I think this is wonderful what you're up to. Oh, thank you very much, Andrew. So tell me, you specialize in character building, professional happiness and fulfillment. Um, can you tell me more about what you are doing and how you are doing it? Yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I started out as a, as a coach and that became a business coach and that then led into business leadership coach. And I have a real idea about that we need good leaders right now. And a lot of times good leaders is based on a solid character and, you know, characters based on strong values. And quite often um, when I go and work with companies, there are people who've been the founder and organiser, uh, the founder of that, that uh, business. But often if I'm working with a corporation, it's usually someone who's good at what they're doing. They've got some skill or competency but they're like a new leader or an accidental leader. So they never started out thinking, I will go into leadership. So they're, they're responsible for business performance, but they've got to do leadership skills on top of that. So that's how I actually developed from business leadership into uh, business, le- business coaching into business leadership coaching. And the idea behind that is to um, create leaders that uh, know the direction that they're going on in, into. They've got the strategic direction worked out. Uh, they uh, have got clear ideas about what business performance looks like. Um, they work on operational efficiencies. They're good communicators and they build high-performing teams. That's, that's the goal behind it. Mm, yeah. Can anybody achieve that? Absolutely, yeah, totally, totally. You know, it's an interesting thing about leadership and, and I've, I'd learned this uh, probably, I would say, late 1997, 98 when I first started in this industry. Um, if I go back then, leadership was based on this idea of that you had certain traits and qualities. So, for example, you know, you've got to be courageous, you've got to be confident, you've got to be that. And I was working in high-end compliance, life and risk industries, so, for example, I'm, you know, if I'm working on a mining site or civil aviation, for example, if I make a mistake, then um, we either get uh, incredibly high fines or on a bad day somebody dies because of my mistakes, right? Mm. So it was, you know, it's high governance, high compliance, life and limb environments. Now, when I went out into those, into those uh, areas and I'm talking about leadership using this, traits qualities approach you've got to be more confident this people would stare at me and go you know what what, what the hell's that you know i got no idea what that means and i i i found that people were disengaged in talking about that because essentially i'm trying to give them a personality bypass i'm trying to get them to be someone that perhaps they're not mm. whereas i started to look at the people the leaders who were doing a really great job and people i look at and i go gee i'd love to i'd actually like to work with that person you know there's something about that person that I'd love to work with. And over a long period of time, I started to piece together what really effective leaders are doing and you can actually observe it because I'm a scientist. My qualifications are in industrial organisational psychology mm-hmm. and you can actually observe what people are doing that works. And just quickly, there are five things that I observe. Number one mm-hmm. is really effective leaders are aware of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Um, secondly, they can communicate that awareness quite effectively. Thirdly, they broker great agreements with other people. Fourthly, they hold others accountable for what they agreed to. And lastly, they, uh, if you like, review what happened 
if it worked well, they said, why did it go well? And if it didn't go so well, why didn't it work so well? And how did I contribute to that? And that was the pattern I saw with most effective leaders that I work with. They're doing those five things. Now, the good news is, is that that can be cultivated. You don't need a personality bypass to learn that. Mm-hmm. So as a result of that, I created a thing called the Business Leadership Profile, mm-hmm. which is a tick and flick questionnaire, which enables people to um, find out their strengths in those five key areas really quickly. And then from that, I can, I can create a bespoke coaching program to develop those five key areas. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, then you, you see people suddenly go, wow, I didn't, have to, I didn't have to change who I am in order to be really good at what I do. Yeah. 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 But in those high risk environment that you describe, how did you finally get them to understand that those are important to develop? Well, um, that's a great question because initially when you go in and work with people, it doesn't matter who I work with, the first thing that people mostly want to talk about are problems. Mm-hmm. So I don't care how big the organisation is. I mean, in fact, I, when I talk to a lot of, I, I talk all over the over the UK and also worldwide about this idea of, you know, um, growing a business and developing a business. And some people think, well, when my business succeeds, I won't have problems. Now, this is really naive because yes. what happens is as the business actually grows, mm. you actually get more problems. But mm-hmm. what happens is you actually get better at solving those problems, mm-hmm. right? So there's... So it's naive to think that you're going to have a business that has the absence of problems. That you know, that's you've got to normalise the fact that if you're doing, um, if you're up to meaningful work, if you're running a business, you will have problems. So when I would go into an organisation, and when I go into organisations today, invariably the person wants to talk about things that they're experiencing right now, problems that they've got, mm-hmm. and I've noticed that. A, a lot of the times, the topics will you either go, either go to you know, business growth problems, why isn't my business performing? Or it'll be people problems. In fact, I get more people problems than anything. You know, why don't people just do what they're told to do? Why can't I get someone to to do what they agreed to do? Those sort of things. Mm-hmm. So it's they're asking questions like, how can I handle people? So if you take that into a compliance environment, mm-hmm. um, why aren't why won't people behave safely? Mm-hmm. You know, how can I get people to adopt our safety culture? You know, because you've got governance and compliance now um, nudging up against you. Mm-hmm. So you're bumping up against that problem. But um, but can you teach it? Yeah. So the way you do it is you start with their problems. You enter at the level where they're at. You, you start talking about what's important to them. Mm-hmm. And from there you build. So in if I go back to what I said before, um, if somebody's telling me a problem, it tells me they have an awareness of that problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Now, invariably... Um, you know, good leaders are not only aware of what's happening, but they're aware of how they feel about what's happening, mm. right? So, you know, I, I'm, I'm going onto a, onto a mining site, for example, where somebody says, look, they have this, I'm, a new, I'm new to the mining site and I've noticed that they have this dangerous initiation for new miners. Should I intervene with that or not, mm. right? You know, because I'm new and they might won't like me, and and you know they might reject me and things like that. Well, the law says they have to intervene, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> so um, I'm aware that this dangerous initiation is being played out here, and I don't feel good about it. Well, then what do I need to communicate? Yeah. And how effectively can I do that? So, so see that's that's the problem they started with. But we're saying let's talk about your awareness of it. Not only your awareness, but 
you know, I know what you think about it, but what does the law say you have to do about this? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, they, I should intervene. Well, that's what you need to do then. See? <laughs> so so in, in the bargain what happens is, is not only does their awareness kick in, but their awareness of what they should say or do about that starts to kick in and they start to behave more congruently and, um, and they start to communicate more congruently. They don't say one thing and do another and then they broker agreements. Do we have this agreement or not? Yes, we do. Well, why did you then go against that agreement? They start to manage those agreements more effectively and then they start to feel, you know what, I handled that really well or, you know what, I should have spoken up and I didn't. Let's talk about why you didn't speak up. That's yeah. what I'm doing in coaching. Yeah, yeah. How do you find somebody who never even reached that level of awareness, who, who refused to see that there is something wrong or any problem around? Yeah, um, occasionally you do, but but um, I rarely run into that problem. I rarely mm. run into that problem because I'm dealing with, with people who are in key roles mm. and at the heart of it, even if they're feeling a little defensive, you know, mm. nobody wants to be called out as, you know, <laughs> you could be doing better. Nobody likes that. But usually mm. I'm dealing with people who if there's a glimmer of I could be doing this a little bit better or even better, mm. usually um, they're receptive. I think the, the reason why people get defensive and they get resistant to doing this sort of work is particularly when you come in and you say this is how you should be, where you, you know, you're saying you should be doing this, you should be doing that, where you're giving a lot of advice rather than mm. entering at a level that's comfortable for them. You know, tell me what problem you've got, mm. um, how are you handling this currently? You know, if you could reset the clock at zero, what would you do differently? Let's say so we could go backwards in time and do it, do it over again differently, what would you do differently? So tools like that, yeah. um, uh they're like peak performance tools, you know, where we're doing really I'm, I'm trying to specialise in peak performance hacks, you know, where I'm trying to get people to perform a lot smarter, a lot better, a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting the right people doing the right things the right way a lot sooner, right? Mm-hmm. And I think what happens is is that people enter into that spirit. They go, okay, so this is not, this is, this is not about finding fault. This is about, about um, being more resourceful or, or solving problems in a more effective way. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. So tell me, how did you find your call? Because I know that you offline earlier, you mentioned that you were a teacher in a previous life. How did you find your call to become this great business coach and really uh, deal with, uh, you know, getting people to be uh, performing at peak performance? Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, I'm going to do this really quickly. Uh, at, at university, uh, I, I studied to be a, a school teacher, right? And while I was at university, I was also running the student university newspaper. And then I went off and I taught for 10 years. I taught in country schools. And my major was in uh, reading remediation, how children read, not, not why they can't read, but why they don't want to, mm. right? And so one of the things that I love doing as a school teacher, for example, was teaching uh, young children how to read very quickly. In fact, my mentor um, uh, was a world expert in that and, um, and so I just followed her methodology mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you know, in, on the side of that I was also running a surfing newspaper and I was running <laughs> an entertainment <laughs> newspaper when I was being young, you know, as you do. I'm teaching and I'm running a newspaper and then at long service leave I, st- I 
took leave and I thought, I'm going to start a newspaper. I started an entertainment newspaper and stupidly I resigned from teaching to run this full time. So at mm-hmm. one point I was actually in competition with Rupert Murdoch. So just so you know, Rupert won, by the way. Mm. Okay. Um, and then uh, from there I found and uh, that that was incredibly stressful mm. and uh, I got to a crisis point with that where I thought, can I keep doing this? And so I actually shut down that that business mm. and I started a family-friendly business mm-hmm. and um, and that uh, became an advertising marketing agency and from there I was headhunted into other agency roles and then, if, uh, and then a lot of times my clients were coming to me saying, how did you do this, how did you do that because I was troubleshooting in agencies and turning them around and then I was doing that for clients mm-hmm. and then a mate of mine said, I think you'd make a good business coach. And at the same time, I'd gone back to university to study industrial organisational psychology and it went from there. So that's how I got into it, yeah. (laughs) Good. So now let's talk about meaningful work and meaningful life. What is your definition of meaningful work and meaningful life? Yeah, uh, meaningful work for me um, is along the ideas that it, firstly, it it gives you a sense of accomplishment um, but it also gives you positive, positive feelings about it. Um, and invariably what that means is that you're doing something that is intrinsically motivating. It's, you're not doing it for the extrinsic hygiene reasons. You know, I, I'm, I've got great money, I've got this, that. Those things are important. Mm. But meaningful work usually has an intrinsic value to it. It, it. it internally motivates you. And one of the things that we know very clearly is the highest level of motivation comes from doing things for others for helping others making a difference in other people's lives so when you're doing things that are very self self-centered for example i'm doing it for money i'm doing it for my own fame i'm doing it for my own reputation those things are extrinsically uh, uh, driven whereas when you're doing things in the service of others so servant leadership probably comes to mind when i'm thinking about mm-hmm. this then what you find is um, uh, meaningful work tends to benefit the lives of others in a, in a, in a, uh, a tangible way. So, for example, my business exists, you know, if you think my business is about digital marketing, for example, you've missed the point. If you think that my business is about business coaching, you miss the point. Mm-hmm. Uh, my business is, is really about um, helping people uh, align with their values. Mm. Right, and when they, when people align up to their values, they do amazing work, yeah. because they're doing things that are meaningful. So meaningful work for me is is in the service of others, really. If I, if I look at it that way, mm. yeah. yes, I like to actually. There is some thought that is just uh, come to mind now. Uh, when you say that meaningful work is really when you are doing something for others, and I've heard many people tell me that, but I like to dig this a little bit bigger better sure. now with you yeah. actually why is that so when you know that also they say that people are intrinsically sometimes selfish yeah. but at the same time um what is meaningful it seems to be you know this servant leadership kind of ideas and do something to others why actually would you say that or you know what can justify that meaningful life is something that we do for others and not for ourselves um, I think I think you've only got to be a student of history to see that, mm. right? Like um, we know that the, the that when people are at their best is when they are doing things for other people. When we feel, you know, you can do things 
for yourself and you should do things for yourself. You know, there's nothing wrong with being a little bit selfish about making your own life okay. Mm. But, but you know, one of the things that we do in psychology is we look at life satisfaction. For example, um, you mentioned earlier that in the introduction that I'm a publisher and we've just published a book called Retire Inspire. Mm. And there's a lot of research that we looked at in, in that. And you know, think about retiring. Most people think about the money. Have I got enough money to retire? But in actual mm. fact, longitudinal studies, and I'm talking about going back 70 years, consistently say that life satisfaction is the thing that makes a meaningful retirement, right? Mm. And life satisfaction usually comes about because um, your focus is is not on on what I can get, but it's on what I can give. If, mm. if, there's a wonderful course called uh, at Yale University, which you can do for free, called the Science of Wellbeing, mm. and it really explores this idea uh, in detail of of what do we predict will make us happy, mm. right? So if you think what will make me happy, and people say things like you know lots of money, <laughs> the right relationship, you know it's 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 you know a good looking man or woman, <laughs> uh, chocolates, a nice mm. car, a nice house, all of those things. Well, the science tells us in, in most cases our predictions of what will make us happy are actually mispredictions and when to, we're actually notoriously bad at predicting what will be good for us and make us happy. Mm. But the things that do make us happy, and we know this, again, because of longitudinal studies into this, are things, for example, like things that have this like intrinsic value to us, um, mm. the fact that um, gratitude makes us happy. Uh, doing meaningful work, acts of kindness makes mm. us feel happy. Um, even thinking about doing acts of kindness for others makes us happy. Even thinking about great being grateful makes us happier, right? Mm. Um, there's a really interesting thing that, mm-hmm. um, and I, I've been looking at the genealogy of my family, for example, and my dad, if you like, was in the, he served for the British Army in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And at the time, um, and and the reason I mention this is because yesterday was the 74th anniversary of the, the liberation of Auschwitz, mm-hmm. right? which my father was um, had something to do with there. And he he used to get very upset with people who said that um, the Holocaust never happened. These historical revisionists, right? Mm-hmm. He said it did happen, right? Mm-hmm. It actually did happen. But what was interesting about a lot of when he talked about his he grew up in a generation where you do good to mm-hmm. feel well. Right, so you did something good, and then you felt well. Yeah. And in about the 1960s, that got reversed to I must feel well, I must feel good before I do good. Uh. And we've reversed that, right? So we, so right up until about the 60s, we had people used to think do something good, and then you'll feel good. Yeah. But in actual fact, we've flipped it to I, I want to feel good first, and then I'll do good. Uh-huh. And we need to flip that back. And that started to ch- occur probably about 2004. Ironically, when Facebook came about, which Facebook has made um, has made us more relational, believe it or not, it's mm-hmm. focused us back on relationships. Yep, yep, yep. that's true, and uh, that's what relationship marketing now works better than any advertising or anything. Oh, totally, totally does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, cool. Yeah, that's very great insight. Yeah. Uh, so, tell me, when did you realize who you are and what you are meant to do in this <laughs> life? <laughs> well, well, between you and me, I'm still seven. Okay? <laughs> yes, I had somebody last time who only figured out at fifty. So you know, any any time is good. <laughs> I, I I think um, 
I think like anyone, you, again, if you talk about clinically maturation, you know, for most men, it's probably about the 25 to 35 where you start figuring that out. But I became very comfortable in my own skin probably around my 40s. Mm-hmm. right where I had a sense of a lot of the fantasies I had you know I, I pretend I'm really you know Francine I'm amazing you know did I tell you that did I mention that I was an amazing person you know yes 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 right. so you go through life thinking all these imaginary things and pretending this and pretending that I think I dropped most of that early 40s I think mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, and I started to feel comfortable in my own skin and I think I I started to get a, a, a clearer idea of what my strengths and talents and skills were. And I think my orientation started to shift more to how can I benefit others? And I think that's, that's you know, I talk to a lot of people about, um, you know, doing meaningful work is actually grown-ups work. It's not adults work. Adult is just a title we give to a chronological age. Yeah. But we know a lot of adults who chronologically have a, you know, they're, they're technically an adult, but they're doing very childish things, very childish, selfish things, right? So doing meaningful work is actually grown-ups work, mm. right? It's a grown-up mentality. That, yeah. if, you, if you think about being grown-up, it's very different to being adult. Yeah. And I think the growing up part, that maturation I was talking about, that probably kicked in, I would say, early 40s where I had a couple of, I had a couple of light taps and a couple of um, serious disappointments in there as well. But you know that's all part of the growing process, you know. Yeah. And then I think the fifties, I really hit stride. I really hit stride, and I think now I'm in my sixties. Um, I'm very clear about who I am and who I'm not, mm. and what I'm up to on the planet, and what I'm. You know, these days I'm very much about family values. You know, it, it, am I doing something that's aligned with family values or not? It's really clear. So a lot of my work is. A lot of my clients really, at the end of it, you know, their kids hate them and their wife doesn't like them, for example, because I work with a lot of men and mm. they just want to get back to a time when their life, when their wife really liked them, their kids love them, you know. So, you know, they want to get back to the strong family. The reason they work so hard is for family. Yeah. So yeah. for me, that's, you know, that's, you know, I mentioned about, you know, I'm a chair of a charity, for example, you know, childhood is precious, but at the heart of that sits family values. Yeah. Mm, yeah no that's great so tell me what is your, what is one of your toughest moments that ended up finally to be a blessing in disguise yeah so I, I go back to if you remember I was talking when I was a teacher I took long service leave and I started an entertainment newspaper where I was actually in competition with Rupert Murdoch and the entertainment newspaper worked with the hospitality industry which when I was doing it I don't know what it is like now, but then it was very much the front for laundering money. It was run, there was a lot of crime involved with it. There was a lot of um, money laundering. Uh, you know, uh, pubs and clubs were places where there was not only alcohol, but cigarettes and drugs and things like that, right? And um, I remember getting a call from someone saying they wanted to do some full page advertising in the magazine. <laughs> and could I come to a meeting at two o'clock? And I, I went into their office at two o'clock and they're all shut. And I rang them up and I said, where are you guys? And they said, no, it's 2 a.m., not 2 p.m. You've got to be, we don't operate during the day. We're a nightclub, right? And I went home and I'm, I'm having this argument with my wife about whether I should go in or not. It's a, you know, there's a lot of money involved. And she said, no, you're an idiot. Who goes at 2 a.m.? You know, you've got children. And, and I said, no, I'm going. And so I got in the car and I, off I drove. And I had to get into town, I had to cross this very, very big, long bridge 
and I'm driving along and the, the chatter cuts in, you know, Andrew, you're an idiot. What are you doing going to a nightclub? It's, it's, it's an awful environment. This is not about family. What are you doing? And yeah, but I need the money. So I, I, no, but you're an idiot. So I did a U-turn and I started to go home. And then I'm, the thought was, yeah, but what about the money? So I did another U-turn. <laughs> yeah, but what about your family? Did another U-turn. What about the money? <laughs> and I think at about the seven laps that I did, I eventually pulled the car over and I, I don't know, I must, have, I, I, I must have cried for about maybe 30 minutes. I'm sitting there, I'm crying, I'm frustrated. You know, I'm a, I, it was one of those moments where I'm thinking, you know, what, how on earth does this work? How does mm. life work? You know, it was so frustrating. And uh, shortly after that, I, I, I made the decision to go home. I mm-hmm. said, what are you doing, Andrew? You know, you're a family guy. You've got a young family. This is, do you want to go to nightclubs? Do you want to go into the single scene? Do you want to go into drugs and alcohol? I said, no, nah, that's not mm-hmm. me. And I went home and I think shortly after that, I shut the whole operation down. I closed that business down because it just did not have align with values. Mm-hmm. So the blue, the, the silver lining that came out of that was a lot more clarity about creating a family-friendly business. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, that's great, yes. And when you look back at your childhood, how would you say has prepared you to be who you are today? God, that's a big question. <laughs> that's a really big question. Um, you know, at the time I wouldn't have seen it. Mm. I wouldn't have seen it recognised at the time. But, you know, as you get older, you reflect. and. Mm-hmm. No, I've, uh, no, I, especially doing a psych degree, you can't get out of that unscathed. You can't get out of that without reflecting on your childhood, you know. You certainly can't get out of that. Um, I think obviously uh, my childhood, it, it wasn't a bad childhood, but, but, but it was tough. It was a very different, it was a, it was a 1950s, 1960s childhood, which is very different to what childhood looks like today, right? But I think um, it prepared me in a way of um, practical skills. I mean, that's a throwaway answer. But I think, I think, how did it prepare me? I think it made me, on a negative side, it sounds weird, but I would say I learned how to be very clever, very funny and very charming. I learned mm-hmm. to get along with people, right? And, I, I, and at the heart of that is a little bit of manipulation. You know, if I'm charming and funny and clever, I'm, I can manipulate situations. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I look back as a child, that helped me survive a lot of things, mm. right? However, as an adult, I think I've learned to be a lot more congruent around how I am with people. For example, if I'm trying to be charming and impressive, I'm more aware of what I'm doing there. And I try and dial that back and, and you know, uh, and I think in childhood I learned it's not about it's not about you, it's how you serve other people. I think that prepared me really well for that. Yeah. Mm. Why did you feel you had to be charming, though, when you were a child? Well, um, that's a really good question. My, I think my family, if I think about it, my dad served in, in the army and in those days they wouldn't have known about post-traumatic stress syndrome. But I think he probably suffered from that and I knew that my dad was probably a difficult person to be around, right? So uh, you sort of had to finesse your way out of things a lot. Mm -hmm. You get it? And Mm. maybe that was a skill I learned to keep off his radar. But I also (laughs) found too that I could twist mum around my little finger and also my grandma and and then I found that work with the the teachers at school and I found that work with, you know, 
a lot of people just by being very, <laughs> very charming. <laughs> but I came to see it's actually a form of manipulation. <laughs> yeah, but it did work. You find fine tune your charm, but you know, well, I think so. Yeah, by yeah. using those skills. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. now I'd rather feel I'm. I, I would like to say I'm more genuine than charming. Mm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. So, what is your superpower then? Well, that was a great question too, because you get you send me that question. What is my superpower? Um, I think probably right now I would say uh, this is a thing I'm talking about currently. But I think a lot of times I help people get clear mm. on their values. Mm-hmm. What is a value to you? You know, and I know I know people who have a mismatch. For example. Uh, when there's a mismatch in what you value, for example, you usually have problems. So, for example, if, uh, you know, there's a lot of research on what are your highest values and you can look at, say, some of the stuff like um, Maslow or Tony Robbins stuff on values, you know. So Mm -hmm. if your highest value is freedom and my highest value is family, for example, we're Mm -hmm. probably going to have a bit of a conflict. (laughs) Got it? Yeah. But then if you just look at your individual, as an individual, a lot of people go against their values and the the problem with awareness is that you know when you're going against your values you know when you're doing the wrong thing you have to sleep with you at the end of the day right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and more often than not the reason you know remember i did psychology and and a lot of the time leaving clinical and medical issues aside a lot of the reasons why people have problems in their life is in more often not they're violating their values Mm. Yeah. yeah so a lot of times in business I'm trying to trying to rev up. Well, what actually is what you actually truly value and align to that? And then in business, I help people then find out where's the value hidden, where's the where's the value lying dormant? You know, where is the real value delivered in your business? And yeah. and getting that. So I guess the thing that the superpower is helping people get immense clarity around their values. Yeah, yeah. I think that's important because people sometimes, you know, as soon as they are aware of their values, second, have the courage to live it. Because yes. some people don't have the courage to live their values. Oh, that's a really, that's a very, that's well spotted. That's a great point. The mm. courage to live your values, yeah. Yeah, yeah cool. Yeah. So, so tell me, so if you can give some tips for our listeners who may be in a mundane or some job that they feel that is mundane at the moment and they don't feel that much meaning, what kind of uh, ways are there for them to feel more meaning and do more meaningful work? Okay, so this is a really trick question. Um, because the, the obvious answer is go find something else to do, <laughs> right? Yeah. But we talked about an influence of childhood earlier. Okay? Yeah. Mm. So one of the things that I was taught was take pride in what you're doing right now, mm. right? Make the best of what you're doing right now. And more often than not, when someone feels something is mundane, they're making a judgment mm-hmm. about what they're doing right now. They, they, they're not seeing the value in what they're doing right now. So if I can give experience of time, nothing you do in life is ever wasted. It's only wasted if you don't actually sit and reflect on it and say, well, you know, how, how, what was the positive in that? What was the beneficial to others in that? Right? So the first thing would be to look at what you're actually doing and rather give it this blanket label that what I'm doing is meaningless and mundane is mm-hmm. to actually ask yourself, what are the aspects of what I'm doing that, is, that lacks meaning or is mundane and how might I improve those things? Because for some people, right, they can't change their circumstances easily or at all. Mm-hmm. 
right? So you need to find some meaning in there. Now, the meaning may not be in the work. The meaning might be in the result of the work. For example, you know, my grandmother did a very mundane role, but she was doing that for her family. And that's where the, that's why she was able to do a mundane job. However, she was also someone who had a lot of pride and did her job exceptionally well. So, so she tended to have tenure when other people were losing their jobs because people could rely on her. So, so she was learning skills of things like reliability and taking pride and doing a job well done for the sake of doing a, a job, a, a good job. Um, so that's the first starting area is to look at what you're currently doing and, and see, okay, where are my judgments showing up here? Where am, I, where am I giving myself a hard time? And then the second thing is to gently look for a side hustle or a side project which does give you meaning. So a lot of people, believe it or not, find meaning in their recreational pursuits outside of work. Totally. But the challenge here is to actually do something in the work that you love doing right now. And the best starting place is to actually start doing a side project Mm-hmm. which is actually quite meaningful and see where that takes you. Yeah, um, that's, that, that's great. Yes, I, yeah. I love the fact that you say, you know, the fact to say that this is a mundane job is like a judgment that we're placing on things. And I love that distinction and that perspective because, you know, in everything, you know, as somebody even told me last time, even when you are cleaning the floor and things like that, you can still find meaning in what you are doing. Oh, totally, totally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, good. Thanks. Now it's time to talk about money. So sometimes, actually, this is the reverse. We have passion and we love what we are doing, but it doesn't pay well. How can we, you know, reconcile both having something that we love and get paid well for it? What's your perspective? So there's actually there's actually three variables here. Mm-hmm. It's it's not just passion and money, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look at it, three things that need to occur for people to achieve meaning is number one, you've got to love what you do, mm-hmm. right? Second thing is you've got to be actually good at it, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of research into, uh, and I'm a big fan of research as you as I've mentioned a couple of times. Mm-hmm. But you've got to be actually good. You've got to get skill acquisition at something, right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, the third one is a choice of where is the value delivered and where do I get achieve the most, where can I actually achieve the most value? Mm-hmm. So, for example, a lot of times people will do things they love, mm-hmm. but at some point they'll say, well, I'm, I've created something based on what people can afford, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, I'm not the cheapest and I don't try to be. If someone does a yeah. value strategy with me, for example, people say, my God, that's a lot of money. And I'll mm-hmm. say, compared to what you're doing what? right now, that's mm-hmm. not. Mm-hmm. Right? The way you're doing it right now is more expensive than my rate, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So a lot of times what I find is people are frightened to make a choice and, mm-hmm. and you know, you're gonna, you're, your specialty is digital marketing, for example, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And niching and micro-niching is like the tool of choice in digital marketing. You know, I see people yeah. still are using, you know, 1980s, 1990s thinking to solve a 21st century problem. So <laughs> you've got to remember, I worked in an ad agency where if we wanted to micro-niche or niche down, it was a very expensive project to do that mm. by direct mail or online TV. Mm. So you went to mass marketing. That's how you did it, right? Yeah. Mm. And it's taken us, a, it, you know, big trends take about 20 years before we get in the rhythm of how this works. So we're still only a little ways into micro-niching, yeah. for example, right? But the wonderful thing about online is yeah. that you can micro niche right down 
and find a market for what you're doing at the rate you want to charge. So here's an example. I worked with a nutritionist who was charging 45 pounds an hour to change somebody's life. Mm. And they would, on average, do about four sessions and then they'd have to go looking for a new client. So the maximum they've made from that client is 180 pounds, Mm -hmm. right? But the value they delivered to that client Mm. was just priceless. So I said, well, what's your gut feel about who, you know, what do you want, who do you want to work with? You know, who would you love to work with? And they said, I'd love to work with... Um, you know, very busy, time-poor professional executives who really care about their nutrition. Now, believe it or not, those people exist mm-hmm. and those people have a budget. What was wrong was their ability to market to those people. So they're still thinking, I'm going to market according to 45 pounds an hour as opposed to I'm marketing a 25,000-pound program per annum. Yeah. Right? So the, it's... It's more often than not, the reason why people stay locked into low-paying uh, work is the fact that they don't know need they don't know how to articulate their value. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a student of marketing, Jay Abraham, who yeah. uh, I've met many times, mm-hmm. um, I said once said to Jay, you know, what is the real secret? If you had to sum up the secret of everything you've learned in marketing, what would it be? He said, well, number one, he said most people don't know how to articulate their value in marketing. Mm-hmm. So subsequently, they end up with whatever shows up, and they will. They will, it's a race to the bottom. They'll cut their prices to get customers instead of lifting their value. Yeah. yeah. Right. And articulating the value. So that's, if I was to say, um, how can I, how can I get paid more for what I'm doing? Then it's, the emphasis is, has got to be on how can I articulate the value that is delivered? And invariably, again, if you're looking at digital marketing, your tool of choice is who's my target client exactly and what are the problems that they've got and the pain points and engineer what I'm doing towards articulating what I do towards what they're trying to get done, not what I'm trying to sell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, no, that's that, a short answer. That that no, that's that's great actually because I'm just kind of uh, smiling here because it's just exactly it's uh, being good at marketing. That that's all. Yeah. And 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 believe me or not, actually this is even why I wrote my book. I don't know if you know that I wrote a book called Personal Branding in the Digital Age: uh, yeah. How to Become a Known Expert, Thrive, and Make a Difference in the Connected World. And the idea is that usually people are doing things, but they don't know how to position themselves, how to pick their niche, how to, you know, articulate exactly the value that they're delivering. Why should they, you know, be commoditized rather than using a premium niche and all those things? And you are totally right, actually. It all comes down to, you know, even in this place where we are talking about meaningful work, meaningful life, is about the skills of articulating the value that you're delivering to other people. Yeah. So, so, so your book, Personal Branding in the Digital Age, which is yeah. a, which is a great read, and people, it's on Amazon, yeah. Yes, it's on so Amazon. So people should yeah. go there, yeah. Yeah. But but see, in a sense, what you're doing is you're giving people hacks, and 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 hacks comes really is is how can I do this a lot smarter, a lot sooner, right? Totally, totally. And, and so a lot of times, if I can give this as a hack for people listening, it doesn't matter what you're doing, whatever service or product you're selling, it lives on the spectrum of premium or budget. Firstly. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about positioning, which mm-hmm. before, it's either a premium or, or budget. It lives on that spectrum of money, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And then it lives on the spectrum at one side is product mm-hmm. or the other side, relationship. Yeah. So 
invariably, one of the decisions you've got to decide is, am I a premium product or a premium mm-hmm. relationship or am I a budget product or a budget relationship? Mm-hmm. And the marketing will be different for each of those four positions. Yeah. So, for example, I'm a premium relationship. Tony Robbins is a premium relationship, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of times, you know, if you take, say, a lot of people, uh, I'm working with a computer company at the moment mm. and their product is Linux. And mm-hmm. so they're positioned as a premium um, premium product, yeah. but, but they're not a big company. And yet all of their success stories are around relationships. And I mm. said, that's what's wrong with your marketing. You're trying, to, you're trying to sell Linux instead of a business solution or a business relationship. Mm. And since they've switched to a premium relationship approach to their marketing, big difference. Mm. That's really insightful, I think. I think, uh, yeah, so I'm going to put all those things in the show notes anyway, and uh, people are going to really listen to them and really, yeah, uh, yeah, even contact you at the end. You're going to share your details if people want to go. Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. Yes, One of the best books you can Mm. read on positioning, it's an old Mm. book and it's very hokey, but it's called Positioning by Jack Trout. I don't know if you've read that or not. By, by who? Jack? No, I Jack don't, I Trout, as in the fish, Trout. Oh, <laughs> okay. Jack yeah. Okay, Jack Great Trout. Book. Okay. It's really old, but it's 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 mm. what most people do is deposition themselves. Yeah. Right. Mm. In sales, for example, uh, you know, I, I did a profile thing called the sales profile. What most people do is unsell potentially good customers. Mm by the way they market, they unsell customers. And that's the thing you've got. It's not selling people you've got to be worried about. It's unselling people who are ready for you. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So, and depositioning, you, uh, you know, you position yourself, but you're actually depositioning yourself is what most people are doing. That's why they need to read your book. Oh, oh, super. Yeah. So I'll, find, I'll also check this uh, yeah. Jack Trout book actually yeah. later. Particularly if you put it in context of where we've entered relational marketing. We've definitely mm-hmm. have entered that since 2004. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's very relational. Um, and in fact, the thing is, if this is for the Brits are listening, you know, the Brits are the best people on the planet to mm-hmm. do relationships. It's, it's absolutely a travesty that you employ Americans to come, nothing wrong with Americans, but you yeah. employ Americans to come to the UK to teach you how to be relational. But well, how come that they are not blossoming in this and then often, often is American that, uh, well, what's, what's wrong? <laughs> well, I think, I think it's from the point of view that, um, the Brits are very polite in a sense that they, and also too, it's you're too close to what you're good at, mm. right? So it takes an Aussie or it takes a Parisian to tell them, here's how you get your personal branding right. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you yeah. yeah, totally, yes. No, that's good. Yeah, that's very great insights. Love that. Yeah. So now let's talk about building a movement. So yeah. I know that they say, you know, there's this say, don't start a company, start a movement. What do you think about that? What's your perspective? Yeah, look, I'd agree with that. Mm-hmm. The way that the way a good a good sentence for, you, for for people to play with is this: if you think it's about X, you've missed the point. Mm-hmm. Right? So if you think if you think Andrew Priestley is about coaching, you've mm-hmm. missed the point. Mm-hmm. Right? What it's really about is why. Right. It's yeah. a really good thing to play with. If you think this is about digital marketing, you've missed yep. the point. It's yep. really about why. Mm. Right. So digital marketing is a tool. Right. Yeah. Yep. But it's really about empowering mm. women, for example. Totally. Like you, your, your agenda is to empower uh, women, particularly. I think you talked about you know, mm-hmm. Pan-African women yep. in the digital age. Uh, totally, you've got a yeah. lot of support and a lot of traction for that. Mm. Um, 
you know, if you think it's about digital marketing, you miss the point. It's not about that. What is it really about? See, that's that's yeah. how that's how you find what the movement is, and that's, you also find your stuff. your you find the entry point for contribution. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. And you, which movements or are you uh, um, creating at the moment? Are you well, trying, are you creating a movement? Well, I think I think for me, it's it is about family values. But if I look at it from mm-hmm. the business community, it's about it's about grounded leadership, natural leadership. I, mm-hmm. I want people to be natural. I don't want people to have a personality bypass. Yeah. We need good leaders, male and female. Mm. But I don't want those people to feel they've got to have a personality bypass and become someone they're not in order mm. to, to show up. Mm. in a way that's powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, believe it or not, you're good enough as you are right now. Yeah. You just need to learn a few skills about how to how to hack leadership and make it work for you. Right? Yeah. But yeah. that's what I want to be known for. I want to be known for, you know, everything I do is around about enhancing family life, but, you know, we still need leadership in family life, that leadership. Yeah. So I, I guess that's good. You know, it's it's effective leadership would, would probably be the, the thing that I would like to, be, uh, you know, I'd like the movement I'd like to drive. Yeah. Wow, that is a powerful one because if you do, if you do enhance, you know, family life, everything starts from there. Okay. If, can you believe that if somebody is enhanced and a leader in their family, they are going to get out and show up as such in the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when you are broken at home and then you don't have any other values, this yeah. is where problems start. So you I, know, I mean, I'll give you an insight about about working with men in mm-hmm. corporate corporate men right mm-hmm. and this is to me is a yardstick and it's a, it's a bit of a secret so you can't tell anyone else okay so but if i talk to if i talk and i work coach a lot of men in, mm. in business right and if i i say we get chatting and usually i hear this narrative if somebody says they talk about their business and why do you work so hard i do it for my family mm. right usually what they say is the order of the order that they're talking about is is business, family, and rarely does their wife get a mention, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If I talk to people who have got it worked out, they're really successful, they're up to something really good, usually the narrative sounds like this. They talk about their wife. Mm-hmm. They talk about their kids. Yeah. And then they talk about their business. Mm-hmm. And if I talk yeah. to super, uh, super successful people, invariably, They'll, they'll talk about their spiritual beliefs, like their belief in yeah. God, for example. Then yeah. they'll talk about their wife. Then they talk about the kids. <laughs> then they talk about their family, right? Yeah. And usually in that order. Mm. And the people who are struggling usually have the order backwards. <laughs> you know? And they hide God at the back and then they hide or, the family and everything yeah, else. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they, they sort of have an each-way bet with God, for example. You know, maybe God does or doesn't exist and you know, I'm, not, I'm not a religious person and, and I don't have an agenda there, but I do have a faith. So, mm, and, but, yeah. I, but when I talk to people who've got it really worked out and they're doing it, they're up to good stuff and they've got a good game and they're grounded, usually... The order I hear is they talk something about their spiritual life, yep. they talk about their wife, they mm-hmm. talk about their kids, and they mm-hmm. talk about their business in that order. In that order. Yeah. Wow, yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's good. So if you have to relive your life again, knowing what you know now, what would you do and what would you no longer do? Um, okay, so, so just to give you a context here, performance of any kind, mm. doesn't matter what it is, let's make give you performance 101. High-end performance is start doing what works, stop doing what doesn't work, and continue what is working. Mm-hmm. 
right? Those three things. Any performance you can think of is made up of those three attributes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I probably would have um, thought a lot bigger a lot sooner, mm-hmm. right? Um, because I, for a long time, you know, I talked about pretending and, you know, I'm pretending this and I'm imagining that instead yeah. of saying, you know, this is important. Let's see what I can do. Let's make an inroad. Let's think a lot bigger. The thing we know about performance is whatever goal you set for yourself, you're always going to fall short of it. Yeah. So you may as well set a big goal. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. So if you say, you know, I talk to business people who say, look, we want to do 10% better than we did last year. Well, I said, why not do 300% better than you did last year? Mm. Right. So they set that as a goal and we look, we play with what that might look like. Now they might do 75% better it's still good that's well that's 65 percent better than 10 percent exactly (laughs) so the thing is i would probably would have i probably would have um thought a lot bigger Mm -hmm. i think um there's a sort of a sense of urgency now i don't really care who i I offend anymore i just go (laughs) what i want yeah and believe it or not that in itself has a lot of power just by being clear this is what i want of course as the the chair of a children's charity for example clear sky children's charity if you look it up wonderful Mm -hmm. you know we have children in crisis in this country children ages four to twelve who've suffered a trauma they've Mm. witnessed a trauma or directly experienced it and they need therapeutic support right Mm -hmm. think of grenfell towers and you can get an idea of what i'm talking about yeah yeah Mm -hmm. we need the support now not in six months not in 12 months not when we're ready we need it right now yeah 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 Um, yeah. so there's an urgency to get a charity that does what it says on the tin Mm. known uk wide Mm -hmm. now you know i'm going to i'm going to pick up the phone and i'm going to talk to people i'm going to say what i'm about now the thing is i'm going to lean into that a lot harder and what most people do is they have these great ideas, mm. but then they say, "Let me let's let's talk about why I don't think it's possible." <laughs> let's play. Let's entertain that. Well, it's a, that's a big choice you're making. That's that's a choice to delay to withhold good from the planet. Yeah, believe me, there are people out there doing things who are doing a terrible job. Mm. You know, I, I know this in business. If you're not out there really, really talking about what you're doing and you know, there are people out there who are doing a terrible job that you can think of making more money than you right now. Of course, yeah. Simply because you are not stepping up. And yeah. in actual fact, it's quite a selfish manoeuvre because you're actually inflicting great customers on bad providers. That's true. Yeah. That's true. And you are hiding and then they don't see the right people to solve their problem. That's exactly yeah. what I explain also, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I don't know if you know of, um, uh, of uh, Sonia Brown, uh, uh MBE. Um, yes, yes, I know her. Yeah. yeah so Sonia does the uh, micro black, uh, MBE micro black ethnic, I think it is. Yeah. The mm. businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, wonderful work. Absolutely mm. wonderful work. And a big part of that is just is just um, empowering mm. those business owners to say, you know, I'm good at what I do. Step mm-hmm. up. Yeah, step up. Yeah, yeah, totally. Wow, cool. So that's very like uh, tons of wisdom that you shared, Andrew. Now, uh, do you have some resources that listeners should absolutely know about what you know um, yeah. to read or find your own or somebody else's? Yeah, well, look, I'm going to be very selfish and I'm going to tell you about three of the resources that yes. I've created because mm-hmm. they come from the heart. Mm. Okay, so the first one is a book on. Uh, they're all books, and they they're on Amazon, and yeah. they're in Kindle and in paperback form. Okay. The first book is called The Money Chimp, and and the, the reason money why chimp. This, like the, chimp, uh, like chimpanzee, chimpanzee, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? 
The Money Chimp it was designed for millennials and money because we have a situation where right now um, millennials spend 130% of their take-home pay and mm. a lot of that is done through credit cards. So on mm. top of that they have millennials right now own $9.3 billion in credit card debt and they pay £141 million a, a, a week, uh, sorry, a day in interest, mm. $141 million, and it's totally fixable. So the money chimp is a great one because a lot of times the reason why people don't crack on in life is because they're so bogged down by the money issues. So get yeah. the money game working. The money chimp will show you how to do that. Yeah. If you are older than a millennial, can't you read it? <laughs> uh, even more so. <laughs> even more so. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Now, I use millennials because it was written for those, but okay. what I find is more people who are older than that are actually reading the book than, than uh-huh. millennials are, right? In fact, it's the parents of the millennials that are buying the book. For their <laughs> they pretend that they're buying from the millennial, but it's for them, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's an easy read. The second book is called Starting. Mm-hmm. And again, the problem I'm dealing with there is that we still, despite our knowledge, we still have a business failure rate of 79% per annum, mm. right? So, for example, in the UK, there are 5.7 million businesses. In 2018, there were 328, uh, 367,000 businesses started and there were 350. Uh, 328,000 business failures in the same Mm. period. Mm -hmm. Now, that shouldn't be happening. And the reason being is a lot of people have a good idea for a business, Mm. but they don't have a good business for the idea. Mm. So if the money chimp is about spend less, save more, get out of debt faster, then the book called Starting is about how to look at your business the way an investor would look at the business. Mm. It's still a money theme. So it teaches you eight questions you should ask yourself about your business so that you actually see coming up with the idea is just one of the eight questions. Mm-hmm. There's seven other questions. So the, so the idea for the business is what's my idea, but mm-hmm. the other questions are what's the business to support that idea. So that's a great resource. And, you know, I get emails every day from people who've read it who said, my God, this just changed. And these are wow. established businesses said worldwide saying this just changed the way I, I do business in a really grounded, positive way, right? Yeah. And the third one mm-hmm. is a book called Awareness, which is only in Kindle at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, um, it's a wonderful book. It, it's it's uh, a 30-day course in tuning your awareness up, mm. and that's on Kindle. And then the last resource, which is on my website, andrewpriestley.com, if you go to the resources, it's called Your Core Message your big idea. And if you're into digital marketing, yeah. you should definitely look at this because most people who show up, and you, you'd be able to say more about this than me, but most yeah. people who show up on digital marketing have had a personality bypass. Mm-hmm. So to give you an example, I'm working with a law firm that their website and their social media is very aggressive. Mm-hmm. But when I talk to them, they're lovely people who care about their clients. Mm. And so what's wrong with their marketing? So so I designed a tool that you can take. It's everything self-contained. You can download the report and it tells you um, what is the my core message. And there are five major core messages, mm. four, five fundamental values, and only one of them is yours. Mm-hmm. So the law firm thought their core value was about making an impact, but in actual fact their core value was about connection. Mm-hmm. So the, the that's two of the, four, the values that I've got there. Well, in this little report, it shows you which core value is yours. So you can take a little test. There's a quiz in there. 
um, you can find out which core value is mine and therefore what is my big message to the world. And, and it, it helps you figure out those two questions. So suddenly your, your, your website changes, your marketing changes, your social media changes, your brochures change because your core value and your message are aligned. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really great. Before you tell us how we reach us, uh, we can reach you. Do you have like a final word of uh, advice to get people really starting to really live a meaningful life now, right now? Yeah, I would say my my big message is it, it's it's a it's an interesting one, but it it goes to the idea of kindness. Mm. Right, and more often than not, I meet people who are so unkind to themselves. Right, we put ourselves under so much pressure to perform and to excel and all the rest of it. Right, and we think we've got to sacrifice our values to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, if anything, a lot of times when I'm working with people, I'm getting people actually to slow down so they can speed up <laughs> instead of going faster. So, it's basic things, it's like look after your health. You know, my body is a temple. I, I rest, I meditate, I sleep well, I have good food, I drink enough water, I stay hydrated, I walk in nature. Look after yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, if I gave you a new Tesla or a new Porsche, for example, you would look after that better than you look after your own <laughs> body. Exactly, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so you've got to be very kind to yourself. You've got to be kind to your, to, you know, a, a, a thing about maturity is accepting your flaws as, and failings as well as your strengths. Mm. And that, to do that is a kindness. And in being kind to yourself, you actually show up being kinder to others. That enables you. It's the doorway, if you like, to being effective in the world. Mm. And kindness um, tends to breed things like gratitude for what you have now and gratitude for the, for the gifts that you have right now. Mm. And that, again, is something that, sharpens and strengthens the values that you have and it also gives you fuel in the tank to do meaningful work so a lot of people want to do meaningful work but there's no fuel in the tank tank. get me i love this metaphor yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, if there's no fuel in the tank you're not going to go that far yeah you know yeah you know the spirit's willing but the body's weak you know so it's look after yourself get rest Mm. um you know if figuring it out worked then just stay figuring it out. But sometimes what you need to do is stop figuring it out. What you need is to maybe do some mindfulness activities or go for a walk in nature or go for a swim or mm-hmm. just chill out and have a coffee with a friend. Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, digital marketing, the way we're going with that is about relationships. It's mm-hmm. not about computers. It's about relationships. Mm-hmm. And so we know, for example, for example, I'll say this, we know there's a, a, a a very clear link now between social media and depression because on social media, people show up putting their best foot forward all the time. Yeah. And the human psychology is we are hardwired to compare ourselves with others and Mm -hmm. we always err in favour of the person we're looking at. (laughs) So we downgrade ourselves and elevate the other person. Now, we know a lot of stuff on social media is totally false. It's a snapshot, a static point in time. Here I am standing with someone famous. Mm-hmm. Well, it doesn't show me what happened before or after. Exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah, no, that's great, so, yes. So if you're a professional, spend less time on social media. Or if you go on social media, show up real. Show up yeah. genuine, right? Yeah. And gravitate to genuine people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I love that. I love that so much. Uh, so now, how can people reach you, actually, sure. if they want to reach you? What's the best way to reach you? Sure. The fastest, easiest way to reach me is on LinkedIn. So mm-hmm. I'm on LinkedIn, Andrew Priestley. On, that's, that's really easy to find me on there. Yeah. Um, or andrewpriestley.com. Okay, good. And, and it's Priestley, P-R-I-E-S-T-L-E-Y. So a lot of people leave the E out. So yeah. it's andrewpriestley.com. So I'm going to add them all in the show notes so that people... Yeah, yeah. But if you're really stuck, just search for me on LinkedIn. I'm on there. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Andrew, for your wisdom. It was a great pleasure to have you on the show. Yeah, yeah, great. And listen, I want to say too, I want to acknowledge you for what you're doing because these podcasts, um, you know, just your line of questioning gets people to really think and also mm. uh, to dig deep. And I think that's a wonderful thing. So if you're listening to this podcast and you think, gee, that was lovely and all of Francine's podcasts, <laughs> then please pass on the link. Let Tell people about it because there's a lot of marvellous stuff going on in these podcasts. Yeah. But thank you so much for the shout out, Andrew. That was great. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> the show notes of this episode of Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life are available on my webpage, francinebelli.com slash podcast with all the references and resources shared by Andrew. Whilst you are there, leave a message in the comment section to let me know about your key takeaway from this episode. If you enjoy this podcast and want to show your love and your support, subscribe to the Meaningful Work, Meaningful Life podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, all the app you are listening to this podcast and leave me a five-star review. It will take you a minute, but it will mean a lot, a lot to me and help me know that it is serving people out there. See you next week again for a brand new episode. Until then, dream, act and make an impact. Lots of love.